Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From Cambridge, Massachusetts, this is Democracy Now! The far-right founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th insurrection. We'll get the latest. Then we hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and Oscar-winning filmmaker Spike Lee on the legacy of Malcolm X, the making of the film, and the power of history. Our ancestors risked their life because they understood that education was going to be the key. Our ancestors risked their life to be educated. We cannot let that go. There's a reason we're the only people in the history of the United States for whom it was ever illegal to learn to read and write. Because we know, right, that education leads to liberation. And you can't keep people down who understand their history. Plus, we look back at the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre in Chicago. On Memorial Day in 1937, striking workers at Republic Steel in South Chicago gathered for a picnic. When Union activists marched towards the plant, police attacked. Why were 10 workers killed and why was the only film footage of the tragedy hidden from the public? Lessons for workers and the media still resonate today. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The White House says it's nearing a deal to avert a default on the national debt less than a week before the Treasury Department says it'll run out of money. As part of a deal to raise the debt ceiling, House Republicans have been insisting on large cuts to domestic programs, coupled with increases in spending on the military and at the southern U.S. border. Under an emerging plan, Republicans led by Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, would agree to raise the debt limit for two years in exchange for strict caps on non-military discretionary spending. President Biden said he's optimistic he'll strike a deal before the June 1st deadline. I made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The Veterans Hospital will remain open and that economic progress will be made and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. On Sunday, President Biden said he'd already proposed more than $1 trillion in cuts to federal discretionary spending. But Reuters reports the White House and House Republicans still remain about $70 billion apart. 
Republicans are pushing a proposal that would slash $10 billion in funding for the Internal Revenue Service to hire thousands of new agents. Meanwhile, environmentalists are warning the emerging deal would substantially weaken the National Environmental Policy Act in order to fast-track federal review of permits for new energy projects. It's a move favored by conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin that's previously faced a number of defeats in Congress. Friends of the Earth responded in a statement, quote, once again, lawmakers are expected to make the unconscionable decision to tack unpopular and environmentally harmful policies onto a must-pass bill. South Korea and the U.S. held their largest-ever live-fire military exercises Thursday and what they say is preparation for any full-scale attack from North Korea amidst mounting tensions on the Korean peninsula. Officials say another four drills will take place in the coming weeks. This came just days after South Korea and the European Union agreed to increase security cooperation. This is EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Just like we do not accept Russia's military aggression against Ukraine, we condemn the DPRK's constant nuclear saber rattling. We stand firmly by the Republic of Korea. Meanwhile, North Korea labeled plans by South Korea, the U.S. and Japan to share real-time data on North Korean missile launches as sinister. In Paris, French riot police deployed tear gas and pepper sprays. Hundreds of climate activists converged on the Total Energy shareholder meeting earlier today. Investors are voting on a resolution to make accelerated emissions cuts in line with the French government's climate goals, a measure opposed by Total's board. The protests in Paris come days after activists in London disrupted Shell's annual shareholders' meeting. Here in the United States, the Supreme Court has sharply limited the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to protect and preserve wetlands under the Clean Water Act, a landmark half-century-old environmental law. Thursday's 5-4 to four opinion, written by Justice Samuel Alito, effectively ends protections for about half of all the wetlands in the contiguous United States. Conservation groups called the ruling a devastating setback for clean water and called on Congress to pass new legislation protecting wetlands. This is White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. The court's decision today aims to take our country backwards. It will jeopardize the sources of clean drinking water for farmers, businesses, and millions of Americans. Uh, look, the, the Clean Water Act is the reason why America's lakes today are uh, swimmable, why we can fish in our streams and rivers, and why safe drinking water comes out of our, of our taps. Indiana's state medical board is reprimanded and fined an Indianapolis doctor who publicly disclosed she'd performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape survivor from Ohio last year. A majority of the board found Dr. Caitlin Bernard violated privacy laws by speaking about the girl's case, fining her $3,000. At Thursday's hours-long disciplinary hearing, Dr. Bernard explained why she decided to speak out. I think that it's incredibly important for people to understand the real world impacts of the laws of this country about abortion or otherwise. I think it's important for people to know what patients will have to go through because of legislation that is being passed. 
Indiana's Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita launched an investigation into Bernard last year after she came forward calling her unfit to practice medicine and urging the board to take disciplinary action against her. Abortion is still legal in Indiana up to 22 weeks of pregnancy. The founder of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group, Stuart Rhodes, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison on charges of seditious conspiracy over his role in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. It's the longest sentence handed down so far for anyone tied to the insurrection. One of Rhodes' associates, Kelly Meggs, received a 12-year sentence for seditious conspiracy. We'll have more on this story after headlines. In Minneapolis, community members gathered Thursday for a vigil at the intersection where George Floyd was murdered three years ago by police officers. A day-long festival and concert are planned for Saturday. Other cities around the country also held memorials and protests. In related news, The Guardian reports U.S. cities will pay at least $80 million to racial justice protesters who were violently attacked by police in various incidents during the Black Lives Matter uprising following Floyd's killing in 2020. That number, already record-breaking, is expected to go up as pending lawsuits are resolved. In New York City, protesters, activists and dozens of groups are calling on the city council to disband the NYPD's strategic response group, which is engaged in brutal attacks on demonstrators. Scores of New Yorkers testified this week, including organizer Isabel Leva. During the more than 200 protests that I have documented at since 2020, myself with my two eyes, I have seen the SRG use barricades to break limbs. I have seen the SRG kettle protesters and pummel trapped people with batons and fists. I have seen the SRG hold a taser to the head of an unhoused man while clearing Washington Square Park after curfew. I have seen the SRG use their bicycles like baseball bats, swinging them at people's heads. I have seen the SRG stand on top of cars and swing their batons at the crowd below. I have seen the SRG pile on top of protesters as they scream, I can't breathe. A Mississippi family is demanding accountability after a police officer shot an 11-year-old black boy who'd called 911 for help. Adarian Murray's mother had given him a cell phone and asked him to call the police during a domestic disturbance with the father of another one of her children. Nicola Murray described what happened when Officer Greg Capers arrived at the scene in the early hours of Saturday morning. He was like, come out with your hands up. At that moment is when my son came out. To come out with their hands up, but you're shooting. I don't understand. I don't want to die. That's what he was saying while he was, I was on the ground. I said, you're not going to die, baby. You're not going to die. Just keep talking. Adarian Murray was released from the hospital on Wednesday after being treated for a collapsed lung, fractured ribs, and lacerated liver. Migrants and finally, in the Mediterranean, humanitarian aid workers are continuing to search for a boat carrying hundreds of migrants that's been missing since Wednesday morning. The boat was reportedly adrift with no working engine in the middle of the sea between the northern Libyan coast and the Italian island of Sicily. This is Albert Mardomo uh, with the Italian Humanitarian Aid Group Emergency NGO speaking from aboard the rescue vessel Life Support. 
On board, there are 500 people, including 45 women, also pregnant, and 56 children, one born on board. We tried our best to find these people, and we will look for them until tonight. Unfortunately, after 32 hours of navigation to reach the distress and 24 hours of active search, we still have not found them. However, it is unacceptable that NGOs and not coastal states defend lives in the Mediterranean Sea. We asked Malta and Italy to take on the operation's responsibility, but they refused to share any information. In related news in France, five soldiers have been criminally charged, accused of refusing to rescue a group of migrants, resulting in the deaths of 27 people as they crossed the English Channel in a small boat in November 2021. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cambridge, Massachusetts. The far-right founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election, resulting in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. It's the longest sentence handed down so far for anyone tied to the insurrection. One of Rhodes' associates, Kelly Meggs, who led the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers, was sentenced Thursday to 12 years in prison. A jury had convicted both men of seditious conspiracy in November. Following Joe Biden's defeat of Trump in November 2020, Rhodes told his followers, quote, we are not getting through this without a civil war, unquote. Federal prosecutors had accused Rhodes of playing a key role in planning the January 6th insurrection, even though he did not enter the Capitol. Prosecutors described him as a, quote, general overlooking a battlefield while his troops stormed inside. During Thursday's sentencing, Stuart Rhodes wore an orange prison jumpsuit and claimed he was a political prisoner. Judge Amit Mehta rebuked Rhodes, saying, quote, what we absolutely cannot have is a group of citizens who, because they did not like the outcome of the election, were then prepared to take up arms in order to foment a revolution. That's what you did, the judge said. The Justice Department had sought a 25-year sentence. We're joined now by Kristen Durer. She's an independent journalist covering right-wing extremism. Kristen, first respond to this verdict, both for Stuart Rhodes and talk about who he is and his associate. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, this was a very substantial win for democracy. Um, this was 18 years is a very long time uh, for Stuart Rhodes to be in prison. And it's strong. It sends a strong message of deterrence to anybody else who is considering uh, doing uh, trying to overthrow the government again in 2024 or in you know future years. Um, so Stuart Rhodes is the leader um of the far-right Oath Keepers organization. And so the Oath Keepers is an anti-government extremist organization founded in 2009. Um, and they have this idea that they're protecting the United States um, from the federal government. Um, and so they have always, you know, been willing and ready to defy the federal government. Um, and they have heavily recruited from um, military, former military members and police officers. Um, and they have had as many as 40,000 people on their membership rolls, though 
likely they've only had uh, a few thousand people um, uh, as members at a time. Um, and I will say that they've always been very conspiratorial in tone, and they, you know, leaders of the Oath Keepers, like Stuart Rhodes, have suggested that uh, the federal government has been taken over by global elites, um, and that they want to put Americans in concentration camps. So this is a very conspiratorial, far-right, um, extremist, anti-government organization. I mean, this is the most severe and longest penalty of over a thousand criminal cases stemming from the Capitol attack. Yes, um, this is the most. Uh, this is the longest sentence. Um, before that, it was one other man who had, I think, up to thirty-two prior convictions and had assaulted um, police officers, and he was given fourteen years. And Kelly Meggs, uh, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers was sentenced to 12 years, which is now the third longest. Uh, this really sends a strong message of deterrence. Um, and also sends a message to those who are still waiting um, for their sentencing uh, who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy. Um, can you talk about the fact that uh, Stuart Rhodes wore that orange prison jumpsuit, um, and the fact that he is saying he is a political prisoner, what he said in the courtroom. Yeah, so this—you this, know, this is exactly what he's been doing since he's been in prison. Um, you know, he has said that he is a political prisoner, and I don't want to mess up this quote, so let me just take a quick look at it. Um, but that he promised to, expo uh, to, quote, expose the criminality of this regime— uh, while he was in prison, uh, while he is in prison. And these are still things that he has said um, during his time uh, waiting to be sentenced. Uh, you know, he has said that the election was stolen, which it was not. Um, and he has, you know, said that his, the, his only crime is having different political views. But we very well know um, that he was plotting and planning uh, for a violent overthrow of uh, the U.S. government, and he was just waiting for um, Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act before they brought uh, weapons to the Capitol. Um, the, according to The New York Times, um, it's also this uh, sentencing is the first to be increased for fitting the legal definition of terrorism. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that um, I think prosecutors were going after when they were seeking that 25-year um, sentencing. Uh, you know, seditious conspiracy holds a charge of 20 years. And so, um, you know, this was something that prosecutors was trying to put, um, you know, uh, Stuart Rhodes in jail for, for a longer period of time. And this is something that, you know, the judge, um, you know, recognized. During a recent town hall, CNN town hall, former President Trump said if he's elected again, he'd be inclined to pardon many of the insurrectionists. The CNN host, Caitlin Collins, also asked Trump if he had any regrets about his actions on January 6th. This was his response. January 6th, it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken to. That was prior to the walk down to the Capitol building. I don't think—and I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people. I've never spoken to a crowd as large as this. And that was because they thought the election was rigged. And they were there proud, 
They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable and it was a beautiful day. And what I was asked to do, I wasn't involved in it very much. I was asked to come in. Would I make a speech? I made a speech. I said, walk peacefully and patriotically, you know, many different things. Can you respond to this, Christian Doerr? Yeah, it's it's a bit um, it's unsurprising in some ways. I mean, we saw immediately after January 6th, Trump, you know, or even during January 6th, Trump not wanting to tell the protesters to go home. Um, he has always remained very loyal to to those who um, are unapologetically and loudly for him. Um, and I think he saw, you know, the Oath Keepers as as tools, as al- as allies in a certain sense. Um, and I think he also, you know, is going to say that he's going to pardon uh, these political pr- or these um, he's going to pardon uh, these people whom he calls political prisoners. Um, in an effort to uh, hold on to his base and to, you know, gin up enthusiasm. There's been a major rewrite uh, among the far right and among even, um, you know, the Republican Party to, you know, rewrite January 6th into not a national tra- tra- a tragedy, but a political protest um, that got out of hand. Now, um, the far right likes to call this an inside job, what happened on uh, on the day—on <clears throat> uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection. The FBI reportedly got a tip about Oath Keepers' plans for armed fight in November of 2020. This was well before January 6th. We just have 30 seconds. Why wasn't this stopped then? You know, this is one of the most frustrating things. Um, you know, even right-wing extreme uh, researchers for counter-extremism uh, researchers and reporters have been seeing um, this violent rhetoric, this, um, you know, all this activity around January 6th. And, you know, there was bad communications, it appears, between um, the different government agencies. And there were certain people who didn't take uh, these th- threats seriously. Um, and that's something that we've seen time and time again, where um, there, when it comes to right-wing extremists, those threats are not always taken seriously. Well, Kristen Doerr, I want to thank you for being with us, independent journalist covering right-wing extremism. Coming up, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and the Oscar-winning filmmaker Spike Lee on the legacy of Malcolm X, the making of the film, and the power of history. Stay with us.
father to son. Music from the movie Do the Right Thing, composed by Bill Lee, the father of Spike Lee. Bill died on Wednesday at the age of 94. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As attacks on the teaching of black history escalate in Florida and other states, we turn to two of the nation's most acclaimed storytellers, the Oscar-winning filmmaker Spike Lee and the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her work on the 1619 Project. They both spoke last Friday on the birthday of Malcolm X at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center, which is housed in the former Audubon Ballroom in New York, where Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. Last Friday marked what would have been Malcolm's 98th birthday. We begin with Nicole Hannah-Jones. I was a sophomore in high school when I first read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it was one of those three transformative texts in my life. I could never see myself as a black person the same after reading that text. A year later, I sat in a movie theater in Waterloo, Iowa, um, captivated by Mr. Lee's uh, brilliant storytelling in Malcolm X. And to this day, anybody who knows me... (laughs) Anybody who knows me knows that's my favorite movie. Um, I've watched that movie so many times, and I just was watching it recently on Delta. Um, And if you go into the newspaper archives of the Waterloo Courier, you will see a young Nicole Hannah-Jones with the Malcolm X, an ex-medallion on, after I'd led the walkout of my school demanding black history be taught to all students at our high school. I'm honored to be here with you tonight um, and to stand in this room, in this very room in 1964, where Malcolm X said, Plymouth Rock did not land on us, the rock was landed on us, right? And I would never imagine that one day I would be standing here right now trying to tell the story of another ship that arrived the year before the Mayflower. The same year I read Malcolm X's book, I read another book by a historian called Lerone Bennett, and that book was called Before the Mayflower. And it told the story of not 1620, but 1619. And we know every American child learns that story of the Mayflower, and yet the story of another ship called the White Lion has been erased from the story of America, because we like to tell the stories that glorify our country, and we want to hide those ugly parts. I realized at that moment, as a 16-year-old child, that history is not simply what happened, on what day, and who did it, but what powerful people want us to remember about what happened. And so what we commonly call history is actually memory. And that memory in the United States has been shaped too often by white men in power who want us to remember the history of a country that never existed. My work is to ensure that before you ever learn about the Mayflower in 1620, you're going to learn about that ship in 1619 called the White Lion. You're going to learn about our stories of resistance, of the contributions of black Americans, and we will not be erased from the narrative of the country that our ancestors built. So to stand here in this very space, on this hallowed ground, is an incredible honor. I am an honor to be here with all of the honorees tonight. Um, And I think about that book 30 years ago, how my life has been inspired by Malcolm X, inspired by Lerone Bennett, inspired by all of the truth tellers. And then we see why they're trying to ban our history, right? Because once you learn your history, you don't accept your place. 
Once you learn your history, you challenge the way the power is wielded against the vulnerable. So that's why they want to outlaw our history, because history will radicalize us. History will open our eyes. There's a reason we're the only people in the history of the United States for whom it was ever illegal to learn to read and write, because we know, right, that education leads to liberation, and you can't keep people down who understand their history. So I promise you all tonight, I will try to uphold the great legacy of one of our most ardent truth tellers, a man who stood up to power all across this nation. And as long as I have breath, they won't bury our history. We will tell the truth. Thank you. New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her work on the 1619 Project, speaking last Friday at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center in New York at an event to mark what would have been Malcolm X's 98th birthday. The acclaimed filmmaker Spike Lee gave the keynote address. He talked about the making of his 1992 film more than 30 years ago, Malcolm X, as well as his family and the power of education. Just days after this event, Spike Lee's father, the bassist and composer Bill Lee, died at the age of 94 at his home in Brooklyn. Bill Lee had a prolific musical career, performing with legendary artists including Harry Belafonte, Aretha Franklin, Odetta, John Lee Hooker, and Bob Dylan. He also wrote the scores to many of his sons, Spike Lee's films, including Do the Right Thing and Mo' Better Blues. This is Spike Lee speaking last Friday. I'm not a keynote speaker. Come to say what I got to say, and that'll be it. <laughs> the most important book I ever read was Autobiography of Malcolm X. Seventh grade, Rothschild Junior High School, and the People's Republic of Brooklyn, New York. Is Brooklyn in the house? All right. It's ha Harlem. All right. That's it. That's it. We're not doing it. That's it. You know what, though? Can we have a moment of silence for Mr. Harold Belafonte? And Mr. Jim Brown, who passed today, too. Um, some of you might have heard that Jim Brown passed away today. Freedom fighters, that's what they are. And they'll be looking down at us, what we're doing. When I read Dorbarfi Malcolm X in seventh grade, I wrote a paper on it. I got a C. <laughs> you got to read that book more than once. And my mind was developed to the, what Brother Malcolm was putting down. But I come from a long line of educators and educated black folks. My father, Bill Lee, jazz bassist, who's done a lot of my scores in my films, was a freshman at Morehouse when Dr. Martin Luther King was a senior. My classmate, the illustrious class of Morehouse 79, is Martin Luther King III. My father went to Morehouse 
My grandfather went to Morehouse, and my mother and grandmother went to Spelman. So we have to understand, we have a long line of educated black folks. As you said, sister, it was against the law for us to read and write. And we, you know, the day we had off on Sundays, that's what we do, you know, under the, you know, reading the Bible. But a master caught you. You get whipped. And we had a bad day. You'd be castrated and hung. Our ancestors risked their life because they understood that education was going to be the key. Our ancestors risked their life to be educated. We cannot let that go. So I'm just I'm going to go to the film. That was the making of that film was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And the great Marvin Worth bought the rights from Dr. Bey Shabazz. Way back. Way back. And for 20-something years, he tried to get it made. Several directors, several, several actors, and finally, Norman Jews was directed with, with Denzel. And when I heard that Norman Jews was directing this, I said, hell to the knob. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. I respect Norman Jewish because it was his job. He gracefully bowed out. He didn't have to do that. And so once we got that, I knew we had to do the film. But from the very beginning, we didn't have enough money. We didn't have enough money. I put half my salary into the film. Warner Brothers knew it. We all knew it. But we're just going to go. I mean, this whole thing is, and, you know, in the studio system, you know, you got to get them, get them impregnated. So we knew one day the money would run out. And Warner Brothers did not want the length of that film to be three hours. We knew it was not about ego to tell the many different lives that Malcolm led. We needed that time. We needed that time. And we went out, we sh it's crazy, we, we, uh, we showed the four-hour version to Warner Brothers. Four hours. We knew we to cut it down, but it was a day of the Rodney King verdict. So we're screening the film for Warner Brothers executives, the two presidents, and the, the secretaries are coming in and out because LA's burning. But to their credit, they stayed throughout the whole four hours. And so it wasn't a long discussion because they had to, we had, I think a helicopter came to Warner Brothers lot and took them to where they had to go. And they, I, they said, how long can the film be? I said, as long as, I said, how long is JFK? Because JFK was coming out. And they said, JFK is two hours. They didn't know I know Oliver Stone. <laughs> I call Oliver, Oliver. How long was, how long was JFK? He said, Spike, it's three hours. Don't tell them. I told you so. So we knew that we had to keep going. We, we did not cut the film the length. And Warner Bros. let the Bond Company take over the film. 
all the people in post-production got registered letters saying you're fired. And said before, I already put half my salary already into the film. So it was the lowest point in my life, with the exception of my, my mother dying. And Malcolm came to me. Self-determination, self-reliance. I kept thinking about that again and again and again. What does that mean? And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. I know some black folks that got some money. <laughs> so this was the plan. Not that only know, but I had that phone number. So I made a list. And here's the key thing. This was not, it, it was not, they, they're not, they couldn't get any money back. It wasn't a tax write-off. Just had to be like, here, take it. Take it. And the first person I called was Bill Cosby. Called him up, said, Bill, first thing he said was, how's Camille? <laughs> then I told him what it was about. He said, Spike, I'll put the check in the mail. I said, nah. I knew he lived in a townhouse up east side. Knocked on the door. Didn't even come in. Snatched that check. Ran to the bank before he could change his mind. So I made a list. And I always get the order mixed up. A great woman, Peggy Cooper K. Fritz. She wrote a check. Tracy Chapman. Janet Jackson. Prince. And then there were two left. So here's the other thing, though, is that every time I said yes, I was asked for more money. I was feeling it. So I had two people on my list called up Magic. Boom. And then the last call, the GOAT who was born in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, not North Carolina, Michael Jordan, born in Cumberland Hospital on Myrtle Avenue. Same hospital Mike Tyson and Bernard King were born. Bernard Albert King born. So, if you one thing about Michael, he don't like to lose nothing. Very competitive. So I just let it slip how much magic gave. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I feel Miss Oprah Winfrey, sorry, sorry. She's in there. I tell you, I get, I get the. So I let, I let Michael. I said, "Well, Magic gave." He said, "Magic gave what?" Boom. So now we had the money, and I had the money to rehire the crew. And at this time, there was no. No talking between myself and Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers gave the film to the Bond Company. So, on this date, on Malcolm's birthday, we had a press conference at the Schomburg Collection, Schomburg Library, 135th and Lenox, and we announced that these prominent African Americans wrote these checks. 
And the next day, Warner Brothers financed the rest of the movie. True story. And the movie is because of Denzel Washington. Denzel had done an off-Broadway play when Chickens, Chickens Come Home to Roost many years. And there were many times when he was on camera that our skin was crawling because we saw Malcolm. It was eerie. It was eerie. And there's one scene, all the speeches were Malcolm's speeches. And there's one scene where you see uh, Al Freeman Jr. as Honorable Elijah Muhammad behind him. And so we're looking at this. Denzel is talking. I'm next to my great cameraman, Ernest Dickerson. And we're shooting film, so there's only 10 minutes in a roll of film. We're shooting 35 millimeter. So Denzel's going. I'm turning the page. He's killing it, killing it, killing it. And Ernest is telling me, Spike, we're about to roll out. And then I see that I'm reading the script, and this is where the scene's supposed to end. And he keeps going. And the stuff, we were all mesmerized. And finally, Ernest said, we rolled out. So I went up to Denzel, and his eyes were glazed over. His eyes were glazed over. Anybody was there, we saw the spirit of Malcolm. The spirit of Malcolm came over Denzel. But here's the thing, though. Denzel, he started working on that role a year before we even began to shoot. Stop drinking. No more swine. No pork was on his fork. <laughs> We're not talking about shorty now. <laughs> but learn how to pray, read the Quran. He devoted his life to that role. So you, I'm not going to name no names. But a lot of these autobiographical films, you could put the makeup on and the hair, but that's, that stuff is superficial. That performance happened because he put the work in. Denzel put the work in, and as Elashi said, it doesn't seem like 30 years, but that performance gets better every year. And there's a great travesty that Denzel did not win the Academy Award for that role. But let me break it down to you. In basketball, there's a thing called the makeup call. Everybody know what that is? When the referee sees a call, they don't call it, and then the next time, boom. One of the greatest actors ever, Al Pacino. Give it up for Al Pacino. He, did, he got nominated but not win for Godfather, Godfather 2, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, 
Al Pacino. He's from, he's from the Bronx, too. Al Pacino's a true. So, he didn't win all those times. Denzel's young. He'll be back. He gets it. Denzel comes around again. Training day. Boom. But we can only... We can't, here's the thing as an artist. You cannot allow other people to determine. You know what I'm talking about, sister. You know what I'm talking about. We can't let other artists determine what our worth is. So, in closing, I'm honored to be here. And uh, we all love. Oh, last thing. This is for you, my sister, Ms. Shabazz. You! Listen! Uh oh, you, what does that mean? You took your glasses off. Hmm? Okay. It's about your mother. During the pre production of this film, I had several conversations with your mother. And. She's responsible for for the, the best, the best, one of the best scenes in the film. Ernest Dickerson, great cameraman. Ernest and I, he went to Howard. H, you know, we came in NYU film school together. He went to Howard and went to Morris. Boom. Ernest shot all my films at NYU. She's gonna have it. School days, do the right thing, more better. Jungle Fever, the Malcolm X. And we we doing this thing called the double dolly shot. Where it looks like someone's floating. And so before we did Malcolm X, Ernest and I said, we have to, we just can't be using that stuff to show off. We've been out of film school many years. We have to have a reason to use that shot. And Dr. Betty Shabazz told me that she felt her husband knew he was going to be assassinated right here. She told me that. And when Dr. Bess told me that, that's when I knew. That's where the double dolly shot had to be. You know the scene, Sam Cooke. What's he singing? Change it to come. He, that's how that scene came to be. Dr. Bess thank you. Good night. The... The Oscar-winning filmmaker Spike Lee speaking last Friday at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, housed in the former Audubon Ballroom in New York, where Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. Spike Lee was speaking on what would have been the 98th birthday of Malcolm X. When we come back, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. We look at the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre in Chicago. Stay with us. It's been too hard to 
is going to come. Sam Cooke here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As Memorial Day weekend begins here in the United States, we end today's show looking back at the largely forgotten 1937 Memorial Day massacre, when police in Chicago shot at and gassed a peaceful gathering of striking steelworkers and their supporters, killing 10 people, most of them shot in the back. It was a time like today when unions were growing stronger. The workers were on strike against Republic Steel. The police attacked them with weapons supplied by the company. The tragic story is told in a new PBS documentary, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. It's based on a book with oral histories of eyewitnesses of the attack. The film begins with the great radio broadcaster, Studs Terkel. This is 1937. And the labor battles are going on. The CIO is being organized. And the steel workers and the packing are all being organized. And the big steel, the big steel companies finally agreed. They recognized the union. But there's one company in Chicago, Republic Steel, Tompkins, I will not recognize the union. And so there was a strike. Memorial Day, 1937, and there was a picnic. Strikers and their wives and kids are on the grounds of Republic Steel in South Chicago. Someone threw a stone, and cops were there at the behest of Gerger. And they shot down 10 people, killed them in the back. In the days that followed, newspapers from coast to coast portrayed the incident as a riot, provoked by a dangerous mob, which left police no choice but to open fire, with 10 dead within days. However, the key piece of evidence, the only film of the tragedy, remained buried. Paramount News created, then suppressed, a newsreel airing the footage. When the hidden footage was finally screened, the shocking images drew national attention. With vital lessons for today. That's the opening to the new documentary Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. This is another clip when eyewitness describes how the police attack unfolded. We hear from reporter Harold Rossman and Molly West, who was a teenager when she attended the Memorial Day gathering in support of the striking workers. We just walked and people were talking and, and holding hands and and the children were being carried by their fathers on their shoulders and uh, everybody was laughing and it was a joyous thing. And as we came closer to the mill, the walking slowed a bit. It seemed like the entire police force of the city of Chicago was out there. But it didn't deter. We were still going to go over to the mill. 
and just conduct a peaceful mass picket line. I could see a few objects through the air. I could see some things being thrown. Not much. It wasn't a lot of stuff. Maybe a couple of rocks. It was a dry, crackling kind of a noise. It took me a moment to figure out what it was, and I realized it was gunfire. And by that time, uh, the people were falling, and they were turning and, and trying to run, and the gunfire continued. Uh, it was clear that a whole number of these people had been shot in the back. They were trying to flee, and they were still being fired at. And then a whole number of people were piled up on top of me, and I could barely breathe. Also, there was tear gas. People finally began to get off, get on their feet. And when I finally stood up, and I, total bewilderment, I looked around and I saw a battlefield. The new PBS documentary, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried, which just aired on PBS, is now online. It's the latest project from longtime author and journalist Greg Mitchell, who's written 12 books and made many films about U.S. politics and history. Greg, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is a devastating documentary about a story very few people today know what happened 86 years ago in Chicago. Take it from where we have just heard these eyewitness descriptions. How did this happen? Okay, well, I'm happy to be here. Um, yes, the, uh, the the police, in fact, uh, shot 40 people, uh, the vast majority in the back or in the side. Uh, Ten would die within, within days. And then they, as the film shows, they waded through the crowd, uh, beating people over the head, uh, some sometimes with axe handles provided by Republic Steel, uh, and so there were another fifty people who were injured enough to be hospitalized. And then again, as the film shows, uh, the uh, injured instead of getting any medical treatment were actually arrested and shoved into paddy wagons and taken to jail or taken to distant hospitals. So, um, and this is all on the Paramount News footage, which was suppressed. So uh, we know the step-by-step uh, uh, things that happened, and uh, you can watch uh, Greg, almost all the your Paramount your film is footage. so good. Greg, your film is so good. I want to go back to another clip from Memorial Day Massacre. A disturbing new account of the death of one man emerged. A photo of Earl Hanley being carried by police, seemingly for medical attention, had appeared in newspapers earlier. Now the full story came out. Hanley, a 37-year-old carpenter, had been shot in the thigh. So a worker tied a tourniquet on his leg to stop the bleeding. The Paramount footage showed him being hauled to a worker's car for a quick trip to the hospital. After the camera stopped rolling, however, police yanked him out of the car and carried him to their paddy wagon. As his tourniquet slipped off, and he bled to death. A doctor who treated some of the wounded presented autopsy reports proving that nearly all of the dead had been shot in the back or in the side.
And this is another clip from Memorial Day Massacre about how progressive Senator Robert La Follette subpoenaed the suppressed footage of the attack. This was the first time film was shown as evidence in a Senate hearing. Senator LaFollette announced that the footage would be screened at both regular speed and slow motion. Pointedly, he asked the top Chicago police officials to take a seat to view the film. This was reportedly the first time film footage had ever been introduced as evidence in Congress. The reaction in the hearing room. Gasps. Some tears. But stony silence from the top police officials. The slow motion revealed a murderous new detail. Much of the press coverage the next day now flipped to blaming the police. Although many news outlets now claim that the camera could, indeed, lie. It's what happened at South Chicago, Memorial Day 87. Also the following day, Paramount, after burying the first two newsreels, at last released a film based on its footage. The following pictures made before and during the trouble are shown exactly as from the camera, without editing, as presented before the United States Senate Committee in Washington. The newsreel claimed that the footage was not edited, but this was false. Actually, it omitted this crucial footage, the deadly first 15 seconds. So Paramount was still withholding evidence from the public. Another excerpt of Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. The director, Greg Mitchell, with us. I mean, this story of what the public understood happened with 10 people killed, talk about the role of the media and the police working with it, whether the camera was shut off, as we saw in the, that first clip, or Paramount suppressing this, Greg. Uh, yes, the importance of it was is the me, the, the mass media right up to the New York Times was supporting the police story uh, that they had no choice but to open fire on these uh, this mob. Uh, um, and Paramount had the had the footage, had the evidence. They created a newsreel and then they they decided not to release it. Uh, they created a second newsreel and didn't release that. And it took the uh, being subpoenaed by the LaFollette hearing and the, the screening in uh, on Capitol Hill then forced Paramount to release a, release a third newsreel. And even then, uh, city officials in Chicago, in St. Louis, in Massachusetts, uh, banned its showing. So it, uh, even in its final form, uh, it was not released, uh, released in full. And Greg, in this last minute, why is Paramount so significant? People might not understand that today. And what is the most important lesson to take of what took place? Well, you know, uh, as you know, the movies were incredibly popular then. This was before television. So uh, most people got their certainly their visual uh, news from uh, from these newsreels, which were shown in every movie theater, every movie showing. Uh, I think the you know, the lesson, among other things, is uh, the importance of uh, of uh, visual evidence when there's police shootings and police brutality, as we see today. Uh, and that's why there's such a focus on uh, releasing uh, body cams and dashboard cams. Uh, of course, another lesson is, is uh, with the great labor activity today, that they stand on the shoulders of uh, the people from the past who sacrificed so much. 
And, uh, you know, that's why I'm happy, uh, you know, people can watch this film right now on PBS org every, everywhere in the country. And, uh, and of course the book has the oral histories of all uh, eyewitnesses and many of the activists who were, were wounded. Greg Mitchell, director of Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. And that does it for today's show. Thanks to Tia Potenza-Smallwood and Susan Hughes here in Cambridge. Also, thanks to Dennis Moynihan and Honey Masood. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.